Okay, well, welcome everyone this evening. Um, I'm really delighted to have with us this evening Stephen Neal, who is Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at CUNY, the City University of New York. Uh, Stephen began his academic career here in London, and we were just talking about when we first probably set eyes on each other in uh, 1980 over a pinball machine. I think we mutually patronized each other then, and uh, maybe that continues even to this day, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, Stephen is going to talk to us tonight on the topic, uh, means, 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 and you should have a handout. If you don't have a handout, they're available from Nicol there, and we'll do our normal thing, pausing round about uh, half past six, and we'll pause for a little bit and take questions after that. So Stephen, please. Thank you, Joe. Um, don't be alarmed by the size of this handout. It's, um, a lot of it's lifted from a very, very long paper. Do you want to just oh, shall I use the, um, yeah. is that actually on? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it's taken from a very long paper, and I, I won't cover everything in here. I want to try and give you the, 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 main, the main points of this. Um, so there's this distinction, which is appealed to a lot, between conventional, <laughs> and um, natural signs, or natural and non-natural meaning in Christ, and so on, or between causal explanations and intentional explanations in Roderick's sense. And um, there's a, been a move uh, with the rise of sort of naturalistic types of philosophy to at least eradicate that distinction at a certain level of theorizing. Um, now, on the sort of natural side of the line, people very often distinguish, as they probably should, between signals and other types of natural signs. So Grice and Millikan and Hauser talk about natural signals, um, and they draw the distinction between those and other natural signs in rather different ways, but there's a sort of common idea there. Now, Grice says the, uh, the meanings of natural signals are special cases of natural meaning. Non-voluntary productions, they mean or normally mean normally mean the producing creature is in this or that state. And then Millikan has this famous view that natural signals are bodily behaviors whose function is to convey information, behaviors whose continued existence depends upon their capacity to perform those functions. Now, of course, Grice and Millikan have very different views about how to proceed. The Gricean view is basically that the, the type of meaning we're interested in when we're talking about linguistic meaning, and speaker meaning for that matter, which is for Grice is more basic, is to be grounded in the mental states of the symbol users, the intentions for the most part, but also um, beliefs and uh, other states. Um, so with the rise of naturalistic theories, it seemed very natural to say, well, do we really need to ground a theory of meaning in the contents of mental states? Uh, first of all, we need to get the contents of mental states sorted out. And obviously, we can't appeal to language to do that if this is the route we're going. We need some other way of capturing the contents of mental states, or the, sometimes the, called the meanings. I don't like this way of talking, the meanings of mental states. What's, but anyway, people talk the way the contents of mental states. Um, some other way. And so the idea of a robust distinction between cultural and natural meaning ideally will eventually disappear. That seems to be the aim of some people. And if you don't buy that, then you're sort of some lingering romantic or religious uh, person who doesn't uh, just want to accept the facts as they are. Now look, this seemed old-fashioned even to Max Black in 1973, the Gricean story. He says here, 
Emphasis upon intention as an explanatory notion in this type of theory is consonant with some widespread tendencies in Anglo-American philosophy, which might be regarded as attempts to recover and refine the insights of continental idealism by marking a sharp distinction between human action and mere animal behavior, and consequently recognizing a basic opposition in method between something German and the natural sciences. <laughs> right, now we've got more ghosts coming in just a minute. Skirms, in a recent, uh, a recent book from 2010 now, says, um, in a famous essay on meaning, uh, Grice distinguished between natural and non-natural meaning. Natural meaning depends on associations arising from natural processes. Associations arising from natural processes, says Skirms. I say all meaning is natural meaning, he says. And this is in the tradition of some very illustrious people. And it's opposed to Platonism, Cartesianism, and various stripes of Geist philosophy. So we've got a lot of Geists going on here, and a lot of sort of antipathy towards Geists. And uh, Skirms appends a footnote to this. He says, Grice is pointing to a real distinction. This is a very odd statement for him to make in a way, as you'll see. But in my view, it's the distinction between conventional and non-conventional meaning. Conventional meaning is a variety of natural meaning. Natural dynamic processes of evolution and learning create conventions. Well, it can't be right, uh, because, of course, Grice doesn't think that uh, conventional meaning is based in conventions, it's based in something more, more basic. But anyway, um, so if you turn over, there are two basic theses that are going to drive what I've got to say here today. And they're usually taken to be incompatible with one another. Uh, and often taken to be both false. And I think they're both true. Um, the first is that there is a philosophically significant distinction between, to be made between natural and non-natural meaning, more, broad, more broadly cultural meaning and natural meaning. And secondly, that in all sentences of the form S means P, the verb mean has the same semantics. Right? So we need this distinction, and the verb mean is not ambiguous. And you, I could see why you might, might initially think that's a weird combination of views. If you believe that there are these two types of meaning, surely you must believe that the word mean has these two meanings. But in fact, no. And in fact, this is Grice's view that they don't. There is natural and unnatural meaning, and mean isn't ambiguous. There's a, amazing how many people think that Grice is actually arguing that the word mean is ambiguous. Whereas if you actually read, he's arguing it's not ambiguous. All right, so I'll try and explain why these two theses actually go together and not incompatible. And I'm going to end up with two competing theories of the semantics of the word mean. Um, they're both inspired by an idea from Grice, the idea that in any statement of the form S means that P, it's closely related to or probably involves or entails or something, something uh, a consequence notion, such that P is a consequence of S. Now, I'll explain why these bold, uh, basically those bold um, expressions are they're noun phrases, to indicate that they're noun phrases and not sentences. And uh, that'll play some part a bit later. So S means that P is in some way, to be articulated, connected with the idea of P is a consequence of S. All right. Now, the first theory is driven by metaphysical concerns, and I think that's the way Grice is going to go. I don't think it's right. I think it involves um, what we call a rationale reading fallacy. And the second, the one I do uh, endorse, is uh, an evidential theory. Now, if you look uh, at the literature, when people talk about natural meaning, there are two dominant views, really. The most dominant one is the causal. It's, oh, it's to do, it's, it's about causal consequence or causal determination, something like that. Another, so it's, the other view is more epistemological. It's an evidential relationship. Okay? And then some of the literature is just this sort of mush of the two, and then there are a few others. But those are the two dominant ones. Now, I think Grice is very much on the metaphysical side of this. I want to go on the evidential side, though I see the appeal 
of the metaphysical side, but I think the, it's, it involved the very idea of this metaphysical understanding of what means it involves a, a fallacy that I'll try and explain. All right, so um, so let's start with on the face of it. So we're down at a start now. On the face of it means a transitive verb like cause or no or represent. Um, and um, what that means is that the um, the two arguments of means are nominals, and the sentence is going to be true just in case the meaning relation holds between the two things that the two arguments, S and P, stand for. Um, but then there's this strange fact about English uh, that you can, some of these noun phrases on the right hand of means and knows and says of, of the form that P. And some verbs don't allow those sorts of nominals as their complements, like represent doesn't and cause doesn't. And there are philosophers who say, talk, they say represent that P, but that's not English. Okay, so there's some verbs that do allow this and some that, some that don't. And one would like some sort of explanation of that fact at some point. Um, so, a bit of terminology with Grice, I'm going to say that any sentence of the form S means P is a meaning specification. And then with Horwich, if the thing that uh, replaces S is actually a linguistic object, I'll call it a meaning attribution. Right, so, not all, uh, not all specifications of meaning are attributions of meaning. And I'm going to assume, which is something I think is absolutely right, linguistic expressions are abstract entities and utterances are concrete events. They take time. Right, so it looks as if uh, you're going to start with three meaning relations as soon as you get into, involved here, because we talk about speakers meaning things, we talk about linguistic objects meaning things, and we talk about something like states of affairs or events meaning things. So the question needs to be asked, is there a single category of things to which these things, meanings, if those things on the right-hand side of means really refer to things, that they all uh, belong to. Um, and people have posited all sorts of things, at least for linguistic cases, like dispositions and um, conceptual roles and so on. Um, and what about uh, categorial uh, constraints? You might want to say that the parts of larger things have as their meanings different sorts of things from the things that they're parts of. For example, singular terms referring to having objects as their, as their meanings and sentences having propositions. You might hold something like that. Um, well, whatever they are for natural language, uh, these meanings, they've got to satisfy a very basic compositionality uh, condition. Um, I'll come back to that um, a little bit later. Now, what about people and states of affairs? Do they stand in the same meaning relation? If means expresses relation, uh, do people and linguistic objects and black clouds stand in the same relation to the things that the things on the right-hand side of mean pick out? or not? And are the things on the right-hand side the same sorts of things? Now, we do say things like um, um, Sam meant that Anne had measles. By uttering Sam has, Anne has measles, Sam meant that Anne has measles. But you might say those spots on his face meant that Anne has measles. So you might say, oh, so they both mean that Anne has measles. Well, it does sound a little pun-like, and I'll get to the, the worry about this in just a minute. Um, so we need to know what the relata of the meaning relation are and, and what sorts of things they can be and whether the th what goes on the left, the, the thing that's picked out by the expression on the left, in some way determines the sort of thing that can be picked out by the expression on the right-hand side. So if we go over to uh, on page five now, the main uses of mean, there's the two sentences I just gave a minute ago that Grice uses um, 
uh, I use the capital N for, for natural meaning and, cap and double N for non-natural meaning, without prejudice. I'm not saying there are these two verbs in English, but let's, you know, just for methodologically operate much of the time as if there are, because it'll, it'll just help just make things a little bit easier. So anyone who's exploring the options for the semantics of mean has got to assume some sort of semantics for these nominals that and uh, had measles, the occurrence in one and the occurrence in two. Now, if you look at sentences three and four, they do seem rather pun-like. Not massively so, but something seems a bit odd, right? Sam and the presence of those spots on Anne's face both meant that Anne had measles. There's something that Sam and the presence of those spots on Anne's face both meant, namely that Anne had measles. Not horrible. Worse than my diet and my dog are healthy, but better than I came home in a flood of tears and a sedan chair, right? So some, somewhere in, in between, okay. Um, and he's explaining. Now, one explanation you could say is this, well, look, it's that um, the word meant is being used in a different way in the two. So that's, that's the explanation of this, this feeling of oddness. You're using the word means in two different ways. Well, obviously, that's not going to be the way I'm going to go. Another idea would be, well, no, it's not the mean. It's, it's, the, it's the thing on the right-hand side, the the P expression. It's picking out two different things. That's another possible answer. The stock answer in philosophy, of course, is that, that P, after a says or means or um, believes, knows, and so on, a proposition, that's one answer. That's not really probably going to work for natural meaning. What is the stock answer with natural meaning? If there is one, uh, it's something like a state of affairs. That seems to be the most common view out there in the literature. So it seems to be already a divide that a, a, that, a so called that phrase, um, uh, that clause misnamed, but anyway, that phrase um, stands for a proposition, if you have a, um, an attitude verb or a speech act verb, and it stands for a state of affairs with any other type of verb. And of course, with means, it looks like we're going to have to have both. If you're an ambiguity theorist, um, you might need to have both. So since things aren't looking good for a, um, a simple unified theory. Now, Grice has an interesting idea for unifying this. And it takes some teasing out, but the, basically the idea is, is on the top of page six now. Um, it's that that P refers to a worldly entity in, in sentence one, and it refers to a conceptual representation of that worldly entity in sentence two. So there's a, a, a connection, right, a nice connection between what that P stands for in one and what that P stands for in two. One is a representation of the other, a conceptual representation of the other. And, you know, if you want to push that, the parts of one correspond to parts of the other. Very common way of approaching this sort of uh, matter. Right, lots of cases where the right-hand side is not of that clause, like five and six. Those spots mean, meant measles. By she, some meant Anne, and so on, lots of other types of cases. Now, some assumptions I want to make before getting down to the, the, the really nitty-gritty. And um, they're all very straightforward assumptions, but some of them are revisable, and one of them I will want to revise at a certain point. But they will frame the discussion very nicely and make everything much easier. Um, so the first one I've sort of alluded to already is that the meaning specific, this is A, a for assumption. Right? I'm going to have C for um, convention in just a minute. Uh, the meaning specifications of principal interest are those of the form S means P. I'll drop all this talk of instantiating and just talk about S and P as sentences and S and P as singular terms. And, It'll just be shorthand. Um, the two placeholders, uh, S and P are placeholders for the arguments. Um, that the expressions S and P are nominals, and that the verb mean expresses a two-place relation. 
So this is all stuff we've been assuming um, so far. Um, so S means that P, any sentence instantiating that form, has the same structure as the sentences in 11 overleaf, but not uh, 12. Right, S causes, represents, or loves P, and not, and so now the italics are going to be sentences. So when you see an italic variable, it's a sen it means it's a sentence that goes in there. When you see a bold-faced uh, variable, it means you put a singular term in there. Okay. Um, and I'll call um, whatever S stands for the bearer of the meaning, and whatever P stands for the meant, or the thing meant. And I'll call S the bearer nominal, and P the meant nominal. Um, now, a fourth condition is one that Grice needs, and I, and I don't. Um, it's that it's not a condition on the viability of a univocal semantics for any verb um, that, expressing it, that expresses a two-place relation in a sentence of the form S, phi's, P, um, that there's a single metaphysical category to which everything that can serve as a possible reference of an expression instantiating P belongs. Okay. Now, I don't need that assumption. Uh, for the semantics, I'm going to Grice does need that assumption because he wants to say that you can a phrase of that form can stand for a state of affairs or a representation of that state of affairs. Right here comes theses and uh, conventions. The first convention um, is C1. If P is a declarative sentence, then let bold P be a canonical nominal that could replace the occurrence of that meant nominal that P in a sentence. S means P. S means that P, where P just stands for whatever that P stands for. Whatever that P refers to, italics, P, bold, stands for the same thing. Um, now, as I said, Grice wants to say that uh, if something means something else, the, uh, the, the, the second thing is a consequence of the first, in some sense of consequence that needs to be uh, teased out. And it just sounds like there's going to be a problem straight away, because do you really want to say that the measles are a consequence of the spots on the face? That just seems wrong, right? So to think that the, the, the P is a consequence of S seems just wrong in those spots on her face mean that she's got measles. Something's gone wrong somewhere. Um, the seventh assumption, I'm going to move straight down the page now because I've talked about the conceptual representation. Um, Oh, sorry, I need six. In a, in a meaning specification, S means P. The meant nominal stands for representation of a state of affairs as propositional content. Again, that's, that's for Grice. So the convention I really want right now uh, flows from the fact that Grice points out any statement of the form S means P, where you're talking about natural meaning, you can replace S by the fact that S, with S in italics. So we get that first sentence is equivalent to the fact that Anne has those spots on her face means that Anne has measles. So here's another convention. If S is a declarative sentence, let S bold be a canonical nominal that can replace the occurrence of the nominal, the fact that S, italics there, S, uh, in a sentence, uh, the fact that S means that P. Now, where the resulting, uh, the, resulting uh, the fact that S stands for the same thing that S stands for, S bold stands for. In a nutshell, what this all boils down to is there's nothing to choose between the next four sentences here. It just means you can go backwards and forwards between these four types of sentences on the top of page nine. S means P, um, the fact that S means P, S means that P, and the fact that S means that P. Right? Just enables you to bounce backwards and forwards between those, which is going to make life a lot easier. Um, the seventh assumption is one I've already mentioned. In a meaning specification, S means P, the bearer nominal 
for S stands for a state of affairs. I didn't state it explicitly, but I said is a very um, common assumption if you take the P to stand for a state of affairs. Uh, very often, one people want to say S means that P is a state of affairs standing for another state of affairs, or a state of affairs meaning or bearing some relation which we need to get out. Uh, between states of affairs. That's a very common view, and people, of course, like Armstrong, have wanted to carry that over to linguistic meaning and speaker meaning, too. That it's a state of, of affairs standing in or something for another state of affairs. Now, I think that's right, that basic idea. But it doesn't force you to say that and is that, that mean is ambiguous, or, um, in fact, that we don't need a notion of natural meaning distinct from non-natural meaning. What do we say then when you've got a speaker? on the left-hand side, Some, an expression that picks out a speaker. S means that P. We, Gratians use these expressions all the time. Sam said that P, Sam meant that P, Sam implied that P, and so on. What are we going to say there? Because you don't want to say that Sam's a state of affairs, right? Uh, that's just wrong. Sam's a person, right? So how are you going to unify all this? Well, the idea is going to be, look, whenever we do this, we actually have this little phrase at the beginning, by do doing such and such, Sam means that so and so. And I want to say, making very important the distinction between states of affairs and events here, um, when we have something like C3, by phying, S meant that P, that's the same as saying that S is phying meant that P. Right? Not the same as saying that um, the, the event meant the same, but this state of affairs. Now, that may be controversial. I'll let it get, if people want to contest that, that's fine. Um, I want to say that that gerundib nominal stands for a state of affairs, not the event. So, for example, um, two primes, Sam's uttering, she has measles, meant that Sam had measles. Not the same as Sam's utterance of she has measles, meant that Sam had measles. I don't think Sam's utterance meant that she had measles at all. But Sam's uttering did. And that's speaker meaning, utterance meaning. Um, right, let's go straight to factivity now. So the, the big difference that people always point to is the factivity of uh, meaning, uh, of natural meaning, and the non-factivity of um, non-natural meaning. So, um, unfortunately, the literature is a bit messy on this, and the philosophy literature, anyway, linguistics literature is pretty clean on this, but the philosophy literature is a bit of a mess. But the basic idea is that a verb is semantically factive, just in case all instances of F are true. If X finds that P, then P. So verbs like know and remember, improve, discover, learn, and realize are factive, and verbs like believe, say, implicate, conjecture, pray, hope, and imagine are not. Okay. Um, what do we say about um, the verb mean? Well, it looks like you have to say the verb mean, when it's got its natural meaning, is factive, and when it's got its non-natural meaning, it's not factive. And that's the sort of basic datum on the first page of Grice's paper. So a bit of terminology now. I'm going to say that the verb is factive, if it has that property. Um, that the sentence exhibits factivity, top of the page now, a sentence has been exhibited, and that natural meaning, that is the, the thing itself, is factive by an extension of terminology. So knowing and remembering are factive no, uh, uh, in virtue of the fact, well, not in virtue of it, but it corresponds to the fact that to the verb remember is factive in the uh, traditional linguistic sense and the verb remember. Okay. Now, um, we've got a, a clear understanding of why it would be, if, if the assumptions we've made so far are right, why meaning, uh, natural meaning is going to be factive. Because we've got two expressions on the right-hand side, and the thing can't be true, S means that P, unless the relation holds between the two things. So the two things must exist in order for the sentence to be true. Well, they're states of affairs. For a states of affairs to exist, it's for it to obtain. So the sentence couldn't possibly be true 
if the sentence, if the it's doubly factored, as Grice puts it later, um, in the subject position and in the direct object position. Um, that explains, so here's, the, here's the, the factivity statement for natural meaning. If S means P, then P. Right, so put the bold P on the left and the, the P on the right. And now it follows, that, and this is going to be important, that natural meaning is transitive. So assuming the conventions that we've used already, we'll get, um, if S means P and P means Q, then S means Q. And that enables us to rescue Dretzky's Xerox principle, which has been much maligned for unintelligibility, and I think it probably is unintelligible the way Dretzky states it, but now it's very easy to, to rescue it. Okay. Um, another problem there's going to be for thinking that um, um, non-natural meaning and natural meaning are somehow what they, the work they do, the work that the verb mean does in a sentence can be captured by a single meaning, uh, even when you're talking about non-natural and natural meaning, is the fact of um, the fact that mean, when it's used in its natural sense, seems to be um, the context is referentially transparent, as they say. It's, minor, it's plus PSST. You can substitute co-referring singular terms on the right-hand side of means when it's used to talk about natural meaning. You can't standardly when it's used to talk about non-natural meaning. So that seems to be a serious obstacle too. Two very major sort of logico-semantic um, um, differences uh, between the uses of the verb mean. All right. Now, ah, you'll need a pen now. This is, a, this is supposed to be a tree and the lines didn't come out. Um, these are just the notions, the very basic notions that you're going to need if you ever start doing the philosophy of language and talking about non-natural meaning. This is the bare minimum to, to get started so that you don't actually make um, horrible mistakes. So you can see how it binary branches. There's, you've got natural meaning and non-natural meaning. Fine, we're under non-natural meaning. It splits between, usually, speaker meaning and conventional meaning. Now, why do I say speaker meaning and conventional rather than speaker meaning and linguistic? Because there can be some conventional meaning which is non-linguistic, as Grice and Schiffer and lots of other people have pointed out. So non-natural splits into speaker and conventional. And then speaker meaning splits into direct and indirect meaning. Uh, for example, the most famous one being Grice's distinction between what somebody says and what their conversation implicates. They're forms of speaker meaning for Grice, remember. You don't, you don't say that P unless you mean that P. You don't conversationally implicate that P unless you mean that P. So we've got two forms of, of speaker meaning there, the direct and the indirect type. And then with conventional meaning, we've got two types. We've got the linguistic and the non-linguistic. And then we've got a vitally important distinction in what I'm about to talk about. The distinction in a very broad, Grice calls it a distinction between timeless meaning and occasion meaning. Okay? I like this blanket as a, as, a, as a cover for all these different theories that fall under this. The most famous, of course, is in connection with demonstratives and indexicals, David Kaplan's theory. Um, so David Kaplan's notion of character is timeless meaning, and his notion of content is occasion meaning. So it's the content that has the truth value uh, with, the, um, with, a, with a sentence. Um, whether there's such a thing as a character of a complex expression, I'm not really that bothered. Most people think you don't need it. You only need the character of a lexical expression in order to get its content relative to an occasion, and then you build up compositionally contents. Right? You don't build up timeless meanings to get the meanings of sentences. You build up occasion meanings. The contents are what compose semantically. Hence that little um, empty set sign there. And then, of course, you've got to distinguish between um, atomic and composite. All right. Um, so I've said 
Occasion meanings are what get composed, um, uh, get, get composed uh, standard, in standard semantic theories. There are a few dissenters out there. Um, it's not going well. Um, normally, the st standard way of doing semantics is you're, you're basically composing contents with each other. At least we know how to do that, at least from a sort of truth conditional perspective. All right, turnover now. Forget about the uh, compositionality. The only point I'm making here about compositionality is that if you take expressions, and there's a, sort of, a lot of misunderstandings in the literature here, it's expressions that have characters and content. It's not that expression tokens, whatever they are, it's, uh, expression types, one has a content and one has a character. Nobody, I don't want to buy into this, this type token distinction stuff. I don't understand it for, for a minute. And I, with Grice and Kaplan, I think it's facile, the distinction, to apply it in connection with expressions, okay? There are expressions, and there are utterances, which are events of expressions. And there are inscriptions, which are sort of derivative of utterances. But there are, there, they, there are, ob, there are objects uh, which um, represent sentences. And the others are events which represent sentences. We don't need this talk of tokens. Now, nobody, as far as I know, has a semantics that composes token meanings. People talk this way, but actually, if you look at any, any actual existing semantic theories, what are actually composed are the occasion meanings of expressions, right? Ex the occasion means expressions, not the timeless meaning of expressions, the occasion meaning. And the, the, the occasion meanings of expressions, not of utterances of expressions or of expressions. Those are what the theory operates on, the compositional machinery works on. I don't think we know how to do it any other way. All right. So bear that in mind, and let's go to animals. People often say, um, look, animal signaling systems are a problem for this whole distinction between natural and non-natural meaning. We reach the position very quickly that a Grice's distinction is neither exclusive nor exhaustive. Okay. Now, I'm not worried about distinctions not being exclusive or exhaustive. Seems to me this probably means it's a very sensible sort of distinction that's been made for some very good reasons. There's no, there's no reason why distinctions have to be exclusive or exhaustive. Okay? They can still be distinctions. There can still be poles, even there's lots of grey. We can still have black and white. We still understand what it is. It's not a problem. Now, the problem is supposed to be that animal signaling systems, if we start fitting it into this framework, it looks as if then animal signals create non-factivity. It looks like Grice preempted all of this. As he says, look, first of all, signals are special cases of natural meaning. Um, secondly, we need two notions of factivity. I don't like the word he uses, flexible factivity. This is in his much later stuff in Aspects of Reason. Flexible factivity. Um, you should really use something like Denkel's term. It's quasi-factivity. And the idea is it's a sort of normative notion. It's what things would be uh, if all was going well. So what he says is, we want factive in a special way, which is divorced from full predict predictability, where the general, normal, or standard truth of P is required for the truth of S naturally means that P. The truth of P is not guaranteed, he said, but may be presumed in the absence of known interference factors. That seems to me a very sensible way to think of what's going on with animal communication systems. Yes, they can mess up, like we can. That doesn't mean that we're not talking about natural meaning. It doesn't necessarily mean that, we're, that we are or are not talking about non-natural meaning either. That's an interesting fact that needs to be explained, that animal communication seems to sort of sit on the line between natural and non-natural meaning. We shouldn't view that as a bad thing. Um, this obviously ties in with a sort of teleosemantic idea that you don't, need, you don't need perfect correlations for this sort of thing to work out. Um, 
In fact, I think something like quasi-effectivity or functional factivity might seem to better capture what Grice is actually alluding to when he talked about flexible factivity. So let's go to the vervet monkeys. Everything, everything ends up at the vervet monkeys. Um, they have these distinctive alarm calls in response to eagle, snakes, and leopards. And I will just call the, um, the, the, the alarm types, right? Uh, e for eagle, S for snake, and L for leopard. And here's what happens. The, uh, the, the typical situation, or the, the right situation, as you might put it, is the, um, the, re the response of the other, other verbs is to look up. I'll just use arrow, up arrow for that. When hearing calls of type E, to look down. When hearing calls of type S. And to climb trees, <laughs> this squiggle arrow just means uh, they climb trees when hearing calls of type L. <coughs> so when all is well, we get these sequences. Eagles, E, up. A snake, S, down. Leopard, L, and climb. So that's, that's how things are sort of supposed to be, as you might put it. So let's focus on a call, alarm called type E. Um, the, the key difference between now the causal theories of meaning and, and teleosemantics boils down to whether it's what prompts E or what E prompts that uh, constitutes the meaning of E. Right? The causal theory says uh, it's, it's what prompts E that you should take to characterize the truth conditions of E. And the teleosemantics says, no, it's, it's, what, it's what E prompts that uh, gives you the truth conditions of E. Um, the, the truth conditional contribution of E. Now, it seems to me there can't be an intelligible debate about whether the causal theorist or the teleosemanticist is right uh, without a mutually acceptable understanding of what it takes for something to be a call of type E. Um, if you go to a high-level abstraction, it's sort of easy. Uh, you just say um, agreement. Um, um, it, look, E is a, a kind of acoustically identifiable viable vervet behavior that normally standardly, regularly, typically prompted by eagle situations and normally, typically, blah, 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 prompting um, down from the tree should be. Eagle sh yeah, should be. Oh, no, looking up. So looking up. Yeah, looking up situations. Right? So if you put it like that, then it seems the causal theorist and the teleosemantics can say, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's right. That's how it sort of works. But we're going to come up with different theories about what the signal actually means, we, we just we agree on these facts as stated here. So what happens when we find the isolated examples of behavior um, that fits ease, this is the eagle one, the, the acoustic profile, as we can call it. We assume we can identify it's some, something we can call its acoustic profile in the same way we can identify phonemes for us. Um, and it prompts the uh, looking up behavior among vervets within earshot, but it wasn't prompted by an eagle situation. What do we say about that one? Or the other way around, witnessing an isolated example of behavior that fits the acoustic proof profile of E, but was prompted by an eagle, but prompts no looking up behavior on the part of the local vervet community. Uh, and then, of course, the, the worst one, uh, of all, when you get a, a production of E, and it wasn't prompted by an eagle, and it doesn't prompt eagle avoidance behavior either. Um, I mean, this is a lot like doing the mad pain, Martian pain thing. It's like, what happens when you lose both at the same time here? Right. Um, uh, and you might want to say, well, look, it's, it doesn't alter the meaning of it. Just because we, uh, one event like this happens, nothing should follow from that. And I'm inclined to agree, because things can go wrong, as we might put it, in the vervets' relation to the environment and the responses of the other vervets to the created environment. Um, that's, just, that's just too bad. Um, I, I agree with this. So let's talk about the um, normal inbound prompt and normal outbound prompt. So the normal inbound prompt is the eagle, and the normal outbound prompt is what it prompts 
uh, on the, when you produce E is the looking up behavior. So we've got the nips and the nops. Uh, do we want to deny that in such cases uh, we don't have a cause of type E? Uh, and what about the case of one just lacking one or the other? And obviously the telesemanticist and the causal theorists will just go, they'll just break in different directions. Right? And it's not obvious that there's a way of sort of getting in here that's neutral between them. Um, the questions need to be answered together about what, what constitutes the signal, right? And um, what happens in these particular cases where the, either the, the input prompt or the output prompt is, is missing. So when we talk about people, we've got a very easy way to get started on this sort of thing because we've got all those distinctions I've just made a minute ago in talking about non-natural meaning. We don't have those distinctions in quite the same way when we're talking about animal behavior and animal signaling. Uh, and we don't, of course, we don't have any great faith in the vocabulary we use to talk about the internal, the mental states, if that's even the way we want to talk about these creatures too. So let's imagine Vinny the vervet, right? Uh, he makes a mistake. We watch him. He seems like a normal vervet, does things the way the rest of them do. And here's a situation where he makes the, uh, the, the eagle call when there wasn't an eagle. What do we say about Vinny? Okay, well, what do we say about winning? So there's a group of bird watchers going out, and they want to find a, an eagle, and they're traipsing home, haven't found any eagles, and then Winnie thinks she's seen one, picks up the field glasses, looks, and says, ah, eagle! And then all the others pick up their field glasses, and eagle, okay? And it's, it's a plane. Okay, so it's the same situation. Vinnie and Winnie basically doing the same thing. They both mistook something for an eagle. At least we can say that of Winnie. It's probably the way we want to describe Vinny, but we're not supposed to really say it like that, are we? Vinny, Vinny mistook a plane for, a, for, a, for an eagle. Um, um, it is the way we naturally want to explain it. Um, so what do we say about the behavior type and about the behavior? Well, in Winnie's case, it's quite easily. Winnie meant there was an eagle there. Okay, that's what she meant. She had the intention, blah, blah, blah. So that's what she meant. What about... Um, the, uh, the um, occasion meaning of, of, of Winnie's utterance. Uh, yep, yeah, there's an eagle up there. Okay. What about uh, Vinnie? Vinnie the vervet. What do we say about him? Well, um, we'd need a good reason to say that that particular utterance, right, the occasion meaning of that utterance, he produces an a E-type call. The occasion meaning of that utterance right, is that there's an eagle present. We need some reason for that. Now, the story is supposed to be, well, it's an instance or something like this of the type of behavior they produce when they uh, see eagles. That is, it's the type of behavior that actually, when, when they produce the signal, there's a, there's a reaction on the part of the other vervets that involves looking up. So not easy to discuss these in a way um, that enables you to make a sharp, a good argument in favor of either telosemantics or a causal theory, or anything else for that matter at this point, as a theory about what the type actually means. Right? That is, what the expression type, as type token theorists want to call it, means on that occasion. Right? We need a story about what Binney's production of E actually meant. Okay? That's not a theory of the timeless meaning of expressions of type E, of expression E, or about what Vinny meant, because Vinny didn't mean anything. How do we know that? Vinny doesn't have the right sort of intentions. So Vinny didn't mean anything in the Gricean sense. Winnie did. Vinny didn't. We need some way to describe Vinny's behavior that talks about 
something like truth conditions, or failing of truth conditions. And that we don't have right now. All right, so now let's go straight to the semantics of meaning. I can wrap this up reasonably quickly now. And you'll see why, how this all fits together. Um, so Grice has this idea that meaning involves the notion of consequence. So S means P is equivalent to something like P is a consequence of S. And we saw the trouble with the measles case. Now, the causal, the causal story is the most popular story in the literature. It can't possibly be right. Um, the best example is this barometer case. Um, so the, the causal, if, if it's causal consequence, we would get something like CC halfway down 17. S means a P, just in case P is a causal consequence of S. But now compare sentence 30 and sentence 31. 30. The fact that the barometer needle has swung sharply to the left means there's been a sudden drop in pressure. The fact there's been a sudden drop in pressure means there'll be soon be a storm. All seems fine. Um, but 31 seems to conform to what we want, that uh, P is a causal consequence of S. Um, but um, 30 doesn't. So yes, 30 doesn't. In fact, 30 seems to conform to the reverse direction. Right? The grammatical form seems to reverse the direction of the causal story that we want. That is, something like CC prime seems to be right for 30, whereas CC is right for 31. That's very odd. It's not a disjunction story about causal consequence for the verb mean, but these are asymmetric, these statements. Why would we even consider a disjunction story? Um, another thing is transitive, despite they going in different directions, transitivity is preserved. So something has gone horribly wrong with the causal story. Uh, if 30 and 31 are true, so is 32. The fact that the barometer needle has swung sharp to the left means there'll soon be a storm. But if cause is going one way in 30 and the other way in 31, what's going on in 32? The meaning relation is transitive. Natural meaning relation is transitive. Cause is normally, one would think, not the opposite. Anyway, transitive. So something's desperately wrong with the causal story. Okay. Um, suppose we then, um, instead of talking about uh, this two-place cause relation, we invoke a causal necessity operator. Does that help? We can have a go. Uh, we'd invert something like Arthur Burke's um, it's causally necessary that operator. So we'd have S means that P just in case it's, a, it's causally necessary that if S, P. Well, now we've lost factivity, right? Because it's if P, then if S, then P. Well, that's easy enough. We just, by fiat, shove it back in. Um, we can do it by just shoving S back in, or we can do S and P. Uh, so if we do just S, we'd get uh, P by modus ponens. That would be causal necessity, CN. Uh, if we want to put them both in, uh, we'd have CN prime. Um, okay, the, grammat the grammatical reversal of the order of causal flow problem seems uh, a bit more uh, under control now, but there's still a problem now. There's two problems, really. Firstly, causal necessity is too narrow a notion. It's not going to do, it's not going to work anyway. And secondly, is a, a technical issue about if being a binary connective. It's not going to work. You can't do that compositionally, that connective. Can't be done. David Lewis sort of shown it can't be done if if is a binary connective. But don't worry, Lewis and Kratzenheimer have showed how you can do it if, if is a combined with a sentence to form a one-place <coughs> sentence operator. All right. It's too narrow because we'll take 33 and 34. 33, that a fig tree is growing here means there's a source of water here. That Sam and Anna here means that Sam is here. Right? This isn't causal. Right? Maybe physical necessity for those two. Maybe logical necessity for 34 too. Logical and physical necessity. But it's not causal. Um, 
Well, physical necessity, again, is too narrow. Um, we could then have this physical necessity connective. It's physically necessary that if SP, and we throw in the, um, the, the S uh, by fiat so that we get factivity by modus ponens. But it's too, too narrow. What about that nine is odd means its successor is even? That I think means that I exist. That Sam's an assassin means he's evil. That Sam's been caught speeding again means he's facing a hefty fine. That interest rates have risen means that, that fewer mortgages will be approved. Okay. A simple idea I rather like, I don't, it's not the final story I want to go with, I think there's a better one, is a notion of skeletal necessity. And this is a view that, um, and Grice holds this idea, it's very embryonic in what he's doing. He sees it in Kant, I, I have no idea. That basically, necessary is not ambiguous. Okay? That is the timeless meaning of necessary and must and should uh, and ought are not, it's not ambiguous. It has the same meaning, but on an occasion in which it's used, it's going to be fleshed out in such a way that you will uh, require some particular type of necessity. Okay, so the idea would be that 35 is, is, is in, true in virtue of math it's mathematical necessity, metaphysical necessity with 36, moral necessity in 37, okay, some sort of legal necessity with 38, and um, some sort of economic necessity, something like that in 39. So you, what you do, you get rid of all of this and just have one principle. This, here's the semantics of means. S means that P just in case S, and it's necessary uh, if S then P for some contextually relevant kind of necessity. Okay. Um, okay, that seems to work for all of these examples. It's just a different notion of necessity. Um, there's a bit of a problem with the deontic cases because it won't get you the right modal base like this. And you have to um, fix up the semantics a little bit in the way that Lewis and Kratzer like. Um, but what I like, this isn't the view I'm gonna end up with in a minute. But I like this view, and I think it's important to get it clear, because it does seem to me the best alternative view to the view that I'm going to present. And it comports with my own view about modal, modals in natural language. And it's a view which I think is just a conjunction of three views that Grice already has, which are, are there already. And it looks like uh, it's, uh, it's his view. Um, first of all, you just need this distinction between timeless meaning and occasion meaning, character and content, whatever you want to call it. We definitely need that. Um, secondly, that look, we should try and not multiply meanings beyond necessity. If we can, we should go for the non-ambiguous view. Um, and we, of course, we saw Grice's implicature defense of if and 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 or and so on. The one of and is not, of or, if is not particularly good. And his idea that certain um, words have skeletal meanings that can be fleshed out to produce what he calls close-knit families of analogically related senses. Putting all that together, turn over, you get NM. MM, sorry. Um, Necessary and the modal verbs must, ought, and should have univocal timeless meanings and be specific modality, modalities are features of their occasion meanings. Right. When, the sentence, when a, a sentence actually contains an occurrence of one of these words and it's used to say something, there will be some particular modality present. It's not part of the meaning of the word necessary or ought. So, okay. um, so there's no commitment to ambiguity in all this. It's just necessity, but skeletal necessity. Um, I won't go over the conditionals idea. You, that, that, that idea won't work as it's stated because it faces compositionality problems on the right-hand side, which seem to me uh, need to be solved. You can solve it by taking the sort of Lewis Heim Kratzer view of conditionals, uh, but you'll then need some issues because if I like, take the deontic case, look, take, I mean, you can see what the problem's going to be, uh, the parking ticket one. 
Um, you, you don't want just just in those um, worlds where uh, where he's um, speeding. You want all just in those worlds where he's speeding, and the laws are as they are in this world. Right? Otherwise, you'll get the wrong truth conditions. You can't do that with the standard theory of necessitated conditional. Right. Um, all right. So, what's the alternative to this view? Um, it's the uh, evidence view. Um, See, I think everything we just did was a huge mistake, in a certain sense. It was, but it was a useful mistake, right? That's the best sort of metaphysical understanding of the word "mean" we're going to get, and it's pretty good. But it doesn't. The transitivity problem hasn't gone away. I haven't solved this transitivity problem, and there are other cases which don't seem to sort of naturally fit under that notion of meaning either. Um, so here's the right view, I think, and it's a, a view I think many people actually have held this view and been berated for holding this view, it seems to me basically right, and there's a, a way to get out of the objections, um, it's that S means the P just in case S is evidence for P. That's it. That's all that sentence S means that P actually means, is that S is evidence for P. Um, and all of those analyses we just looked at, and all of the arguments against this view, trade on the same mistake and I'll call it a rationale reading fallacy, it's the mistake of trying to bake into the semantics of the word mean, turn over, the kinds of justificatory reasons, in Grice's sense, that speakers will have for believing they're expressing truth when uttering it. That's the mistake that's been made in all of these metaphysical understandings of means, of natural meaning, right? Baking into the semantics, the sorts of reasons that speakers are going to have for asserting sentences that contain it. That doesn't make it part of the meaning, right? Those are simply the reasons that you believe you're saying something true. So, this rationale reading fallacy occurs when a non-existent reading of a sentence is captured or predicted as a result of mistakenly baking into the semantics of the word some fact about a speech speaker's rationale for uttering, uttering it. Now, the evidential analysis, I claim, captures all the relevant data. All the objections to it are simply cases where that rationale reading error is being made by the objector. Um, the kind and the strength of the evidence uh, will vary with the subject matter, but the kind and the strength aren't part of the truth condition. They don't contribute to the truth conditions either, the kind or the strength of the evidence. Um, they're not part of the truth conditions of S means the P. In some cases, it's very easy to infer what the strength and the evidence is. And with the senses we just looked at, 34 to 39, um, a speaker will believe he's uttering a truth if he believes that S and accepts that something leads us from S to P in this some sort of modal way uh, that was talked about. Now, unlike all of the metaphysical views, this one solves the transitivity problem. If it's just that S is evidence for P, 30 and 31 entail 32 despite the causal reversal at, in the grammar, as it might be put. So again, there's something has been captured by talking about the evidence of one thing for another rather than any, any sort of causal or necessary connection between two things. Right? Somehow, that got us off on the wrong track, and we lost transitivity of natural meaning, and, and so Dretzky's Xerox principle, we retain it here. How do we add non-natural meaning to this? And this is a, well, I'll end with this couple of points here. Um, how well do these two semantics of mean where, the, the metaphysical one and the evidential, epistemological one, how do they fare once we throw in non-natural meaning? Because remember, the promise was we're going to have one notion of meaning, 
um, that uh, one semantics mean handles all of these sentences, whether they talk about natural or non-natural meaning. Well, the Gricean uh, story is pretty straightforward. Really, this is all about the fine-tuning uh, of the theories with respect to the relationship between timeless meaning, character, if you like, and, uh, and occasion meaning. Now, the Grice, I mean, we haven't even sorted this out for indexicals yet, so it's not a problem, I don't think, that we haven't actually got this straightened out, this relationship between timeless meaning and occasion meaning. People are still fighting about what it is for indexicals, what that relation actually is and how we spell it out. So we shouldn't be too perturbed that we've got the same problem with necessary and with mean and many other words too. Reason, for example, in Grice, that's another one that has this univocal meaning for him. Um, so... The, the, for Grice himself, it's pretty easy. You simply say, you bite the bullet on the, about, uh, about what the P stands for. You say, in natural meaning, it's okay. There's that principle I said at the beginning that I wasn't going to accept that Grice needs. And it's that you don't worry that the P refers to one type of entity in one sentence and a different type of entity in another sentence. Especially if you've got some analogical relationship between them. And you have that one is a representation of the other. The proposition or thought, whatever you want to call it, representation of a state of affairs bears some very special relationship. This isn't some ad hoc uh, ambiguity. This is a tight relationship between a state of affairs in the world and a representation of the states of affairs and the pieces of the states of affairs and the pieces of the representation. At least that's what people have been going for. So it seems to me that's okay. Uh, the, the Grice can go down that road and have his concept of, me of meaning. The problem is, of course, the transitivity of those cases. That's still all got to be sorted out. The evidential view has a different story. And here, it's a traditional old story. When we speak, ideally, we say things that are true. We we're sincere and we're reliable. So the default, big so there, so the default is that when people speak, what they're doing is providing, providing evidence for some state of affairs the obtaining of some state of affairs. Now, of course, lots of pragmatic theory these days is based on exactly that assumption. Of course, Burge makes this assumption. Lots of people make this sort of assumption. This is now built in as the default. Given the sorts of creatures that we are, although we're inten intentional creatures and we have intentional explanations, the default scenario is that when we make these noises, we are producing evidence for the obtaining of other situations. And we need reasons to... Uh, to um, contest that in any particular case. And sometimes we have very good reasons. So it's just a different type of evidence. And it's the very fact that we know that we are not infallible and that we know people can be insincere that makes it the case that we're not going to get factivity with that <coughs> notion of meaning. With, sorry, with, with um, statements of that form. Right? It's nothing to do with the notion of meaning itself. Right? It's the type of evidence. Certain types of evidence are going to make it uh, the case that we've got utterly that they're utterly, utterly reliable evidence to be. Other speakers' utterances in an ideal world, yes, but we have the possibility of being mistaken and, um, and insincere, so no. So states of affairs on the right-hand side, all the way down, according to the uh, evidentialist. It's just that sometimes we're, you know, we're in a situation of Winnie and Vinnie. So it doesn't seem to me such a major price to pay there. <laughs> Um, so, so to conclude, uh, what about linguistic meaning per se? Okay. Well, look. First of all, we don't have um, we don't have reliable sentences of the form S means that P 
for linguistic objects. This is a bit of a myth uh, that we get. I guess it really must have started with Tarski, and it's perpetrated throughout the community that somehow we've got these statements of the form S means that P, uh, where we've got linguistic <coughs> items on the left-hand side. What we can do is statements of occasion meaning, where we're talking about a particular occasion and what a sentence, for example, snow is white, means, right? Uh, that sentence is occasion meaning. That is, it's meaning on a given occasion of utterance. Right? That's easy enough to parlay into this, the utterance situation. The timeless meaning, well, that's always been a problem. These statements that people use, that Grice and Schiffer and people have used, and Horwich use, many of them are incoherent. We don't know what this thing on the right-hand side is supposed to be. When people say snow means snow, and then they write in capital letters or something, or underline it or boldface this, except insofar as they mean, well, that's things, just the meaning of the thing on the left-hand side. Well, we knew that, that whatever you put on the right-hand side is going to be the meaning of the thing on the left-hand side. Before you wrote it out with capital letters, right? Uh, what actually is that sentence doing for us? And the answer is, most of the time, it's completely metalinguistic. So we can say things like, if you look at the, the very last sentences on here, uh, beneath, when people say beneath means under, that's the sort of thing you might hear, beneath means under, sounds right, but what actually is going on in that sentence? It's really a bit of shorthand for beneath means what under means, for people who know what under means. It works for them. If you don't know what under means, it doesn't work for you. So that's what's really going on in those sorts of cases. Uh, and of course we do it all the time with foreign words, rougeol means what measles means. LA, la rougeole, means what she has measles means. That's what, we, that's what we try and do when we're talking about timeless meaning, and of course that carries over automatically to occasion meanings when we fix references of she and so on. So the correct semantics is actually the simple one. Um, the kind of strength of evidence, it's an evidential one, the kind of strength um, varies from occasion to occasion, and so does the, the kind of, and the strength of the evidence. Um, that, that semantics doesn't assume an ambiguity. Um, and it, uh, it doesn't assume that we've erased this robust distinction between natural and non-natural meaning. It's just accepting what I think everybody accepts now. There's a continuum between the two. And animal communication is perfect for exploring the nature of that continuum. Um, we shouldn't get hung up on whether uh, philosophical distinctions are exclusive or exhaustive, as we have done in debates about natural and non-natural meaning. And biconditionals are not only a lot of fun, uh, they're really quite useful to analyze and refine these biconditionals over time. We shouldn't accept with Schiffer and Foda, this is a history of a huge disaster of checking out these biconditionals and then revising them, refining them. They play a very important role in leading us towards things that are better or worse in our general approach to the topics we're interested in. It's the history of a roaring success, it seems to me. Thank you. <laughs>